Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, a podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the Long War. Today, we're going to talk about the Shia militia, part of the Islamic resistance. What's the plan? Who are the biggest threats? And what should the response be? And how, how, we, how we see them playing into this current fight that we're experiencing right now. And of course, my friend and colleague, Joe Trusman, who is a research analyst at FDD, as well as a contributor to the Long War Journal, he's going to join us, as well as my very good friend and longtime colleague at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, Benham Ben Tabalu. He's a senior fellow. He focuses on Iranian security and policy issues. Joe, welcome back. And Benham, thanks for joining us on such quick notice today. Thank you. Welcome, thank guys. you. It's a pleasure to be back. Yeah, Likewise. yeah, it's been it's 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 been a little time. So, Joe, how you doing over there? Hey, not bad. I'm surviving, you know, getting through. So, I think we we started the Long War Journal in 2007. We came up that that name obviously we didn't create. I think it was from Rumsfeld, and but we recognized you know the jihadi war is going to be a long war, and at times like this when you know you're you're going full tilt for days and weeks, uh, you really realize how how long these these wars are. So, uh, just hang in there and. You know, one day it'll ease up. It might be months. It might be a year, but we'll get there. All right, guys, let's let's launch into it. We've had a lot happen over the last forty-eight hours uh, pertaining to the Shia militias in Israel right now. Things have sort of settled until that ground offensive launches. Until the war in the north really blows up, we're sort of in a bizarre holding pattern here. With in the north, a low-level several attacks a day coming from. Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and Hezbollah. Israelis are pounding on Hamas in Gaza right now, going after Hamas's infrastructure in Gaza in preparation for that ground offensive. And with the developments with the militias over the last 48 hours, I think it's a good time to, to turn a little bit of focus to them. Yesterday, we had a very worrisome incident in the Red Sea where the USS Kearney, the U.S. Navy destroyer, was patrolling. It detected and shot down three missiles that were launched from Yemen. They were launched by a group known as the Houthis or Ansar Allah. This is a group that has launched missiles in the past. Now, these missiles apparently were not targeting the Kearney. U.S. officials were saying they believe they were aimed at Israel. Where else would they be aimed at? And also, there were reported to be drones that were reported to have been shot down as well. So the U.S. really, that's the first engagement, active engagement by the U.S. in, in this ongoing war. And if those missiles were, were targeted at the, at the U.S. warship, uh, boy, we'd be having a much different conversation today. And then in Iraq and in Syria, several U.S. bases, the U.S., yes, does have troops in Iraq and does have troops in, in Syria. There have been attacks on multiple bases. I believe three or four attacks now. I'm starting to lose count. And so these militias, they're all part of what they, they call themselves the Islamic resistance. It was created by Iran. Um, you know, look, we all know about Hezbollah. We all know about Hamas. We all know about Palestinian Islamic Jihad. But there are other Shia groups out there that want to target U.S. interests, that hate Israel, that want to weigh in on this conflict. Several of them, and we reported at the Long War Journal, have um, made it very clear that they want to attack U.S. forces in Israel because of this. So um, let's let's talk a little bit about the Islamic resistance. I'll start with you, Benham. What is Iran's plan 
with the Islamic resistance? How do we think that these groups are going to weigh in on this war? Well, I think we're seeing in slow motion the, the testing of a, of a larger strategy that many in Washington theorized uh, Iran would have for a constellation of partners and proxies that it has either created in places like Iraq and Lebanon, like the Badr Corps in Iraq or Hezbollah in Lebanon, or co-opted like Hamas in the Gaza Strip or the Houthis in Yemen. And they call this hub and spoke system the axis of resistance. And it was always really an open question in Washington and elsewhere that if one of these militias, one of these uh, spokes is going to go down, would the patron of the proxy, Iran, directly intervene or would they somehow marshal firepower from the other spokes in this hub and spoke kind of a connection? And what we're seeing now in very, very slow scale is the testing of that thesis that the Islamic Republic is willing to bring online more of its firepower found in these militias in different geographies and different battle zones of the Middle East. And the unmanned aerial threat spectrum that it has mastered and it has proliferated to these proxy groups uh, is now being able to be marshaled at Israel or at the U.S. to be able to deter conventional conflict, meaning deter the Israelis from kinetically continuing uh, to uh, carry out operations against uh, Hamas in Gaza, or to be able to uh, prevent the U.S. from uh, having the political and military wherewithal uh, to be able to support Israel uh, in its conflict uh, against Hamas in Gaza. So to deter escalation sounds fancy. Some might even think it's nice. Some might even think it kind of aids in stability, but it doesn't. Because what it does is it allows them to continue to strike at you, and then they can marshal assets to prevent you from striking back at them. So in this case, you have at least two or three bases in Iraq, at least one in Syria, the Tanf garrison, uh, and then with the Houthis in Yemen, making good on a threat that they actually have been making, you know, you and Joe and Caleb and others at, at Long War Journal have been writing about this for at least a half decade, uh, to enter a conflict uh, with Israel uh, when the time presents itself. And what I see here again is yet another parallel with the 1973 war. You know, in 1973, Anwar Sadat, an Egyptian president, explained as the operation was going on that he wanted to prove the Israeli theory of security would collapse. I see that in real time with Iran's axis of resistance. They're trying to prove this Israeli mowing of the grass war between the wars uh, is collapsing, that they cannot erode permanently Iranian proxy firepower. But ultimately, uh, in the lead up to that conflict, we saw the Egyptians fake out the Israelis so many times. They had so many drills on the Sinai that when the amassment actually became, people thought it was another drill. And I'm saying that here because with the Houthis trying to launch three land attack cruise missiles, they are the only Iranian proxy in possession of land attack cruise missiles, and they are the only Iranian proxy in possession of medium range ballistic missiles. These are both game changing kind of equipment. Uh, and they're a proxy that Iran co-opted, so it didn't even create. So if they have that kind of a trust with their patron back in Tehran, uh, that ultimately, because the Houthis have been saying this for so long, that we will enter a conflict uh, between Israel and Hezbollah or Israel and Hamas or Israel and PIJ, that people wrote it off. And we heard again just earlier, maybe two or three days, I think you and Joe reported after uh, October 7th, after the Hamas terrorist attack, that uh, uh, the Houthis threatened 
that if uh, Israel continued, that uh, that they would enter the conflict. And lo and behold, I agree with you. I don't think those missiles were aimed for the Carney or aimed for U.S. installations. I think they were aimed for Israel's southern, uh, you know, uh, port city Eilat, which is reachable by some Houthi long-range strike platforms, which are brought to you by Tehran. Yeah, I mean, look, firing, you know, long-range uh, ground attack uh, cruise missiles, not to get too technical, or I won't, at a ship in the sea. That's unless they, unless some serious modifications were made on those missiles. It's, you know, I don't, I really don't think uh, they were launched at the Kearney. But that being said, um, the U.S. has been forced to weigh in um, militarily on this war. Um, and, um, you know, I, you know, look, when you're on that ship and you see missiles in the air and they may, and they're heading in your direction, you're, you're certainly, you know, there's not a lot of time to make a decision. Um, and, uh, they have to, they have to react and they did that, you know, you had mentioned, you know, plausible deniability, Ben. Um, you know, one of the things is like, this is, we've seen these groups, the establishment of these groups or the co-opting of these groups as, it, as has been done with the Houthis, right? Um, and it's it's not plausible anymore anyone who who wants to make that disconnect between the groups at this point in time i really think you have to you have to you have to be doing that willfully you have to be closing your eyes to it and the you know it's it's just something that's undeniable at this point and the other point you had made too that they've been making threats for years and they have and you know i've you know a lot of people have tuned them out um over time and and i don't because if you watch what these groups do over time, be it the, you know, the Iranian backed uh, militias or, you know, on the Sunni side, the uh, the jihadists, they ultimately make good on those threats one way or another. It's just that these groups have they've been they've been holding their fire. They've been keeping their powder dry for the right moment. And I think this is the right moment. Joe, do you, do you think this is the moment where we're going to see these um, these Iranian-backed militias start weighing in on this fight. I mean, we oh, just yeah. saw it yesterday with the Houthis, so it's not a stretch. Obviously. Right, yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, we've already, yeah, we've seen it, uh, not only from uh, Yemen, but uh, maybe from Syria, there's some projectiles that were launched earlier, uh, closer to the, when the war began. Um, however, yeah, this is something we've, track for a long time this is what iran is this is why these proxies or these groups that it backs that's uh that's why they were created right that's why iran backs these groups it's to start a conflict on uh, a multi-fund conflict on israel's borders uh something important i, I wanted to note that that then was mentioning is mentioned that he mentioned rather is that yeah that these these missiles were uh launched from yemen but the Israel and they were subsequently shot down by the uh, U.S. Navy. However, Israel is able to defend itself from these types of uh, types of uh, weapons, right? The ballistic missiles uh, or, or or drones, for example, that may be launched from Iraq. So they have the capabilities. I, I know uh, I recall. I think it's uh, the uh, the Arrow Three, and then there's uh, David Sling. Uh, of course, the Iron Dome. They have the uh, the uh patriot batteries as well i'm probably missing something else but they're those are the big four the the big ones yeah those are the big they have ones. they have that laser now actually they oh, just yes. i forget what it's called 
called Iron that, Beam. They just used it in Iron Beam. They just oh. used Iron Beam in this conflict. <laughs> so is that actually operational? I didn't. I, I don't know. I, I, I look. I've seen reports of it. I've seen a video. I, I didn't look into it. I'll say that. But the it isn't. I know it's in development. It's been in development for a while. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, if if there was a time for the Iron Beam to be, you know, operational, <laughs> it would be right now. They can use it. But, but yeah. But just going back very quickly. Uh, you know, it's yeah, just like Benham was saying, and and you, Bill, these groups have been, you know, this, the, the making statements, these, these uh, this violent rhetoric that uh, you know they will attack Israel. They started; it was really noticed it in 2021 with the Gaza Israel war. Uh, it was about an 11 day war or conflict in, uh, between Palestinian armed groups and, and and Israel, and we started seeing this rhetoric that. Uh, from these groups, from the Houthis in, in, in Yemen and Iraqi groups, uh, that they would come to the assistance of Hamas because they are a part of this uh, axis of resistance, right? That's that's led by Iran. The Syrians are involved, obviously Lebanese Hezbollah, so on and so forth. So, uh, so I'm not surprised uh, to see this happen. And also, uh, something's very important here. Compared to previous wars, I really believe, I do believe, Hamas is. Hamas, rather, is its existence, at least in Gaza, is seriously threatened. And just like Benham mentioned, uh, other groups may, Iran may choose to activate these proxies or groups that it backs to assist, Ham, uh, assist Hamas if it, if Iran feels that Hamas is on the ropes. Right. Uh, and that may, that may, uh, may very well happen. Also, these attacks against the, uh, American bases. And troops, um, it's also signaling to to the United States, hey, we're able to do this, we're able to attack you. Don't uh don't get yourself involved in uh the Gaza war. Uh so um so that's what's happening right now. But I, I do see I do expect more increased attacks from uh these other fronts. Yeah, so you know, one of the things that worries me about these groups is um these are battle-hardened groups, like they shouldn't be viewed as groups that were just formed and have just been you know, kept on the shelf in Iraq. The, you know, again, Hezbollah has been around for decades, right? Well, in Iraq, these militias have now been around for two decades. And they, they, the Iranians, the RGC, Quds Force, have created these militias. Well, some of them existed, like Bader Corps, right? Um, that was, you know, they fought alongside uh, Iran during the um, Iran-Iraq War in nineteen in 19, late 1980s, right? Um, but some of these newer militias that have been formed, and they're not new anymore. They're again, they're 20 years old. 2003, the Iraqis began building these militias. The Quds Force went in, um, got key Hezbollah operatives. They created these militias um, to basically be analogs of Hezbollah. And they've been fighting for two decades now. They are responsible for killing over 600 American troops um, in IED attacks the uh, deadly EFP attacks and ambushes once the U.S. withdrew, but the U.S. still kept a presence there. There were some continuing low-scale attacks, but then they moved on and fought the Islamic State as it rampaged in, Iraq, in northern and central Iraq and drove to almost to the gates of Baghdad. Um, these militias, uh, they weighed in, and then new militias were formed, some of them offshoots of the old militias. Then they began fighting in Syria. And then you had the co-opting of the uh of the Houthis um by 
by Iran and the Houthis again, very battle hardened group. They control a large swath. Most they're, I mean, really, they look like the government in Yemen. They control northern and central Yemen, um, including the capital. Um, they've been fighting for what for decades now as well. And then there's even the Pakistani and Afghan and Bahraini groups. Uh, Bahraini groups might be the only ones that have been on the shelf, although I'm not, uh, it's possible that they've been filtering individually to fight in other theaters. I know that Iraqi and Afghan, I'm sorry, Pakistani and Afghan groups have been fighting in Syria as well. So look, I certainly have my list of who the most dangerous ones are, but, um, Ben, I'll start with you. Who do you, who do you, what is the, if you could pick one or two of these militias, who, who worries you the most about, um, who, who do you think is, um, most capable of posing a direct threat in this conflict? Uh, you know, un, un, unfortunately, uh, it's going to be more than just one. But, yeah, well, uh, that's the problem with this, right? <laughs> it, exactly. Uh, if we're going to go for the heartland, for the Iraq-Syria border, you know, it, it, obviously folks, because of the history of statements, may want to say Kataib Hezbollah or say Bat al-Haq. For the U.S. perspective, I'm a, a little concerned about this other group, uh, Kataib Sayyid Shuada. They operate on both sides of the border. It's a very funny situation we actually have with KSS. There's been multiple moves in the Congress to designate them. Uh, they're not actually even on the U.S. SDN list. They are occasionally put on this smaller two-year non-proliferation sanctions list called INCSNA. It's run by the State Department. It's not even run by the Treasury Department. Uh, it's a two-year penalty only, and it's just about arms trafficking because the, the the militia group was trafficking, uh, uh, you know, uh, missiles and rockets across Syria and Iraq. And I think his, the reason I'm worried about it is historically they operate on both sides, just like the other entities. But uh, it's the one entity that we, the U.S., have used force against, but have been afraid to build the legal case against. So just like Kataib Hezbollah, Saib al-Haq. Even uh, Harakat Hezbollah Nujaba have become household names. For some reason, uh, KSS has not become a household name. And if we're going to pick a militia that operates on both sides of the border, that has both rocket and drone capabilities, that has struck U.S. forces on both sides of the border, and in the in this most recent game of cat and mouse between uh, you know 2021 to present, where there's been some 70 or 80 uh, attacks, indirect fire attacks on U.S. positions in Iraq and Syria, uh, KSS has been involved. Uh, and more recently has benefited from the fact that we focus our firepower on Syria rather than Iraq. Uh, I would I would like to highlight KSS. I know it's certainly not going to be a game-changing one if they enter the conflict vis-a-vis the Israelis. In terms of the hardware, game-changing would certainly be Lebanese Hezbollah and the Houthis. Again, Lebanese Hezbollah because the PGM capability, the Houthis because, again, they're the only forces with MRBMs and uh, LACMs. But um, uh, you just if we're going to focus on the heartland and the potential to distract us and make the conflict spiral in a, in, a, in a politically different way, I would say KSS in the Iraq-Syria heartland. How about you, Joe? Right. Yeah, that was, uh, I think that was, that was just a perfect explanation. I, I would like to add that um, another facet to this is that in, in Caleb Weiss, uh, and I talked about or wrote about this actually extensively uh, late 2020 and through 2021 on, on Long War Journal about front groups. So you'll start seeing these groups that you never heard of, but are that are likely established by, you know, the larger, larger groups like, uh, you know, Kataib Hezbollah or Hezbollah Brigades uh, and other organizations. So 
for instance, in 2021, you started hearing uh, about attacks against there, there had been attacks on, against American American troops, uh, and you'd start hearing these uh, odd, oddly named groups like Guardians of the Blood Brigades and Revenge of Muhandis Brigades, Avenger Brigades, uh, and there was there was more, right? And but they would pop up, make this claim, publish some videos of of rocket fire against uh, American-led coalition forces uh, in, in Iraq, for example, or or Syria, uh, and then they would just disappear. You never hear from them again, right? So it, it was it was very interesting. So it wouldn't surprise me for us to, as this conflict in Israel drags on, that these at uh, the same proxy organizations uh, that have been uh, established by these by these groups uh, start popping up again, right, and start uh, making these claims and so on and so forth. But it all ties back to the uh, original, you know, the established militias in Iraq, which are obviously tied back to Iran, and they're all a part of this again, this axis of resistance that involves you know Hezbollah and, and the Palestinian armed organizations, so on and so forth. So uh, I, I expect to, to start seeing that uh, that that type of um a type of campaign uh by by these iran backed groups uh, that we saw in uh, 2020 and, and 2021 yeah it's interesting Bill, you guys can, can i just uh, to... oh go ahead can i just want to connect the dots on something uh joe just mentioned which is really 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 critical um you know you bill you were in iraq you saw this stuff I just want to stress for the audience that this names business that Joe is getting at is really the heart of the matter and how much Iran's proxy game has evolved, that their proxies have proxies, right? You know, Bill, you were watching this live in front of your eyes, 2000, you know, four or five. All the rage then was the, remember the, the, the crazy acronym, JAM, the Jaysh-ul these special groups. These were all just special groups. We didn't even have names for some of these things yet. We didn't have ways the U.S. government was logging it, let alone ways that the Iranians or their Iraqi friends were trying to spin it. And then from the special groups came some of the most popularly known names that you guys were just discussing. And then really starting right around the end of the, the Trump administration's first term, near the time when... Uh, there were the military responses to the Trump administration's max pressure campaign in Iraq uh, after the killing of Soleimani. There was this proliferation of these groups, as Joe mentioned, and they did things that hinted at the world we are in today. I don't remember if it was the the Blood Brigades or the Promise Day Brigade uh, or, or w- which one of these groups. Uh, maybe it was these newer groups. It was Ashab al-Kaf, like Guardians of the Cave or Uspat Tairin. They have they have the proxies of the proxies had a proxy. And they were firing drones at Saudi Arabia, right, from Iraq into Saudi Arabia. I believe this was January, February 2021, if I'm not mistaken. And that is a telltale. That was, a, that was in my view, a critical moment that the hub and spoke begins to move in different directions. You know, uh, unlike 2019, where Iran had to fire those land attack cruise missiles and drones themselves at the oil installations and then had to blame it on the Houthis because then... They were the only ones with that reach. Now the militias in Iraq came online, now being 2021. And then fast forward to where we are today, it absolutely makes sense that uh, the the strategy is passed on. It's like this football that we've been seeing successfully passed on from 2005, and no one has been able to stop the play. You know, so 
I had to mute my mic because I was laughing so long at their proxies have proxies, uh, Benham. So thanks for making my day on that one. It's just the perfect description. <laughs> and, and, you know, it has another effect. It gets, I think it gets a lot of um, Western analysts. They start tuning these groups out, right? It's like, oh, it's, eh, that's, who are they? That's nothing. And it's, it really is a, a, a brilliant strategy by the Iranians and by these groups. It's just, it's not plausible deniability. It's layers of plausible deniability. Um, and I found it really interesting that you guys focused in on some of the unknowns here, right? The ones that we know about, but most people don't. I am going to go back out to the, um, to the bigs here, the Asiba Hawks and the, um, Hezbollah brigades. I do agree about KSS and, and groups like, uh, Sayyid al-Shahada, you know, groups like that. They, But, you know, if you look at the leadership of these groups, these were the core guys back in the day. We had the leader of Yusif al-Haq, right? We had Case Ghazali in custody for four years. He admitted to how Iran and Hezbollah helped establish these groups. And so, um, but, you know, Akram al-Kabi, he's head of one of these groups. He was a Mahdi army lieutenant back in the day. I remember writing about these guys in 2005, six, seven. That's how long these guys have been in the, in the game. And what worries me about groups like Asiba Hawk and Hezbollah brigades, their longevity, their experience, their, their rank and file, their mid-level leadership. They're all battle hardened. Hard. These are groups. When you look at the Iraqi militias alone, I had a friend, I, I had, was talking to a friend in the business and asking about the estimating the size. And I said, I've heard around 230, 230. He said, he said the number's over 300,000 of these uh, Shia militiamen that are now in Iraq. That is a force multiplier. If they are employed, even if half of them, if a third of them, if, if a quarter of them, if, you know, 10% of them are, are deployed against Israel, that is a force multiplier for the access of resistance. Um, so let's um, quickly, um, we'll wrap this up. What should be the response from the US or the response from Israel um, about these militias? Should they should they be keeping their powder dry now? Um, well, like the attacks are happening against the US right now. I mean, the US should be responding in some way. And I fear, I think the US fears an escalation of the conflict. I know the, the Israelis do now. Is the time to respond to these types of attacks when they happen, or should there be preventative measures? I'll start with you, Benham. I, well, I certainly think there should be preventative measures, but uh, I'm reminded as we enter the, the spooky season, Halloween, of this line from, from the unabridged version of Dracula, where Dracula is, is saying, there is a reason for why things are that they are. There's a reason for how we got here, Bill. Uh, and you and Joe know it and lived it. Um, and the reason is that there weren't preventative measures. And if there were, they weren't sufficient to have prevented uh, the arrival of this situation where we know we joke the proxy has a proxy or Iran tested a strategy, then passed it along from group to group to group like a football. Um, but so I certainly think that warrants a response. Um, uh, you know, again, the, you guys are fans of this phrase. I, I love saying it as well. I've learned from the best. No more disconnecting the dots. You're absolutely right on this one. At some point, holding the patron accountable. Uh, until we get to that point, I do think there needs to be kinetically deterrence established against these groups, particularly the groups in the heartland, in Iraq and Syria. What I mean by that is, if you look at the response ratio of the Biden administration, it's actually been quantitatively great, greater. Uh, so they're responding more than just to when the U.S. loses life. Uh, but geographically more 
quarantined. They're doing it much more so in Syria than Iraq because Syria is a free fire zone and Iraq has domestic politics that we uh, are afraid to impact. In fact, I do think we need to respond against the point of origin against these attacks. So my, my you know, policy rack number one, respond, but respond against the point of origin against these attacks. Two, uh, if we have any kind of intel on the leadership of these organizations, signaling strikes, or if not even targeting strikes against the leadership of the militia organizations is going to be absolutely crucial to sending that deterrent message. We are fast approaching a you mentioned the Iran-Iraq war, uh, the need for a praying mantis-like moment, for a kind of awe-inspiring moment of deterrence to make sure that as the Israelis decide how they're going to take the lowest of the low-hanging fruit of the Iranian proxy network offline, that being Hamas and Gaza, that the U.S. can stay out of the conflict. And the way that the U.S. can stay out of the conflict is to have shown or sufficiently deterred uh, the the Iranians or their or their proxies in some space. So I think in the heartland that means a responding against the point of origin, b responding against known weapons depots, and c uh, critically uh, responding either through signaling strikes or through targeting strikes uh, at the leadership uh, of some of these key organizations. Uh, knowing knowing full well that you need to send this deterrent message, and the more we wait. Uh, the, the more I think time will, will be a tool on Iran and its, and its proxy network side. Broadening the picture, uh, I think uh, the, the shows of force in the region are necessary but not sufficient. You know, moving the carrier there, I think this, it was reported that uh, this uh, ballistic missile destroyer in the Red Sea uh, came from an existing NATO mission. That's good. We want to make sure that uh, there are sufficient assets both in the Persian Gulf. We don't want to keep our eyes off of that domain and in the Red Sea and in the Eastern Med. So resourcing-wise, you want to make sure you have both the men, the munitions, and the money to support that. Uh, beyond that, you want to communicate much more clearly to the American public. Already we're seeing messages about, is Biden promising something? Is stuff that's supposed to go to Ukraine, go to Israel? The, the administration cannot afford an own goal on the political messaging of why this fight is so critical and why how we can selectively help advance Israeli aims and Israeli aims will ultimately, the success of Israeli aims will ultimately redound to the success of the U.S. national interest against a network that has American blood on its hands. Uh, this is all going to be very key. It's going to be very, very hard to do as we also have obviously not taken our eye off the nuclear ball with Tehran as well as, uh, you know, the Russia-Ukraine dynamics as well as trying to deter China. It is a lot. And I'm sure uh, U.S. service persons and U.S. policymakers are taxed to the brink already. Um, but this is, I think, just the price floor of what we can and should be doing. That's what they get paid for. Yeah. You know, look, uh, deterrence or show of force is not just parking uh, carrier battle groups off the coast. Uh, they ultimately, and I think Yemen is the perfect example. Those missiles were fired. A U.S. destroyer had to engage missiles. We should respond and be destroying missile sites in Yemen right now. We're not going to do that. Everyone's worried about escalation. Joe, really quick, what do you think? Um, are the Israelis going to be reactive or proactive when it comes to the Shia militias? I think uh, with enough intelligence that uh, Iraqi militias or any other militias attempting to to attack, that they will respond. They have the capabilities to do that. And just borrowing from what Benham said a few days ago, we were at, at a place talking to some people. I'll just leave it at that. Just keep it vague. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. That the United States is the tough guy, the big muscles at the gym, but he can't, can't throw a punch when it comes down to it. That's what happened. These Iran-backed militias aren't deterred. 
that's what's happening here. And that's why we're seeing these uh, additional fronts opening up. That needs to change. Ben, I'm Joe. It was great to get dinner with you guys the other night. Great to see you in D.C. Absolutely. Yeah. Had, had a fantastic time. And thanks again for joining us today on the show. I uh, really appreciate your insights. I know the audience does as well. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. Just a reminder, you can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. Preferably a positive one, but only if we earned it. Thanks again. We'll see you all again on Generation Jihad real soon. Generation Jihad.